Welcome to another edition of our Law Gospel Devotional, in which each week we take some time to look at God's two words as they're revealed in his scriptures, both the word of his law and his gospel. In case you don't know who I am, my name's Eric. I'm a pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in a number of different ways. And typically what we do here is we take a text from the upcoming weekend's lectionary and we try and dissect it to try and find where we, where we see God's two words being revealed to us. And this week, well, it might be the most obvious way that we can, or the most obvious passage for at least seeing God's law, because indeed we're going to be looking at God's law, specifically as it's recorded in Exodus chapter 20. Yes, indeed, we're looking at the Ten Commandments today. Uh, but before we do that, I always like to go into a little bit of the background and try and explain why it is that uh, the editors of the lectionary may have chosen the various texts that they did for the upcoming Sunday. And so to that end, uh, the gospel text for this Sunday is uh, the third Sunday of Lent is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Now, of course, the meat of that passage is Jesus cleansing the temple. And, of course, that's a very famous uh, story. It's actually in all of the different gospel accounts, although John does, it ha does have it much earlier than the synoptic gospels do. Nevertheless, we've, we're familiar with the story. Jesus sees money changers in the temple where really Gentiles are supposed to be allowed to worship. Clearly, that's not going on, and there doesn't seem to be much care about it. There's a lot of money to be made, and that seems to dominate the whole structure of uh, the temple. And Jesus doesn't like what he sees, and so he grabs a whip and he drives those money changers out. And of course, this is Jesus's way really of saying uh, that I'm condemning the hypocrisy that I see here, but also I'm reasserting my ownership over this place. I am the Lord God in the flesh, and this is my house. I'm the captain of this ship, Jesus seems to be saying in this event. But what's really kind of sticks out to me in this passage is, is what comes towards the end. We're told that there were some seeing what he did in the temple that respond to him by at least appearing to be receptive. And yet we read these words in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to, hear witness, to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Indeed, he does. He knows that man well, basically has a heart of darkness, as the famous character Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now is based on that character in the book, Heart of Darkness. Jesus knows that what is in man is naturally bent towards rebellion, and so he doesn't entrust himself uh, to anybody that even appears to be uh, friendly towards him in that temple vicinity. And this reminded me, as I was thinking about the heart of darkness, a famous uh, quote from really and actually uh, it, what would be viewed as a hero by many. I mean, he was a resistance fighter during, in Poland during World War II when uh, the Nazis were first really getting ramped up in Poland in the Warsaw Ghetto. And yet this, this hero, Yitzhak Zuckerman, would say about himself, if you could lick my heart, it would poison you. <laughs> I mean, that is about as vivid a description as you get when it comes to the, the understanding of the heart of man. Jesus really reiterates this in Mark's gospel when he says all the evil in the world comes from within. Well, where is this real, realization made manifest to us most clearly? Of course, it is in 
the condemning, accusing finger of the law of God, as Charlton Heston does such a good impression for us of in the Ten Commandments movie. So let's go ahead, without further ado, let's go ahead and dig into those ten words. A little bit of introduction for you about these things. First of all, our natural assumption about the law is that it was given to make us good little boys and girls. That is just what we naturally think the law is there for. Now, uh, it is, you know, it is true that it is telling us to be better. There's no doubt about that. The law is prescribing to us how we ought to live. Indeed, the law certainly instructs us uh, what it looks like to be good. But its primary function, uh, as, as Luther will really highlight in the Reformation, but, but Paul really does the work for us first in Romans and Galatians, its primary function is to reveal how we've fallen short of the standards of God. Indeed, it is interesting that even at the, very con at the very instance that the law is being given, the first thing we're told about the people of Israel that are wading down the mountain from Moses as he's receiving God's holy word of what to do is they are literally breaking the very first and most important commandment that will be delivered to them, which is to worship God alone, as the meme so uh, illustrates for us here. And so the, the reality is the Ten Commandments, yes, they do instruct us what it is to be good, but they don't give us the power to be good. The, the Ten Commandments can basically be divided into two tables or tablets. Uh, the first table command, uh, contains commands one through three, at least in the Lutheran understanding of how we break down the commandments. The Reformed have a different way of doing it, uh, and, uh, and there are different ways of sort of breaking it down, even though we all include the same ten words, the same commands. But we would say the first table is the commands of uh, the first uh, through third command, and that really deals with our relationship to God. It's a, it's a vertical sense. It's the vertical commands between God and man. It's how we relate to him. But then the, the, sec the second table, which is commands four through 10, and that deals with our relationship to our neighbor. And so really, in summary, the way that the rabbis and certainly Jesus reiterates this is the law can be summed up this way. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, when you say it that way, it sounds simple enough. Who can't understand exactly what we're being told to do here? Indeed, as we dig into the commands, it's not hard to understand what's being said. We understand very clearly what's being said. That doesn't mean that we have the ability to do it. So let's dive right in. Exodus 20 verse three begins, you shall have no other gods before me. And then it, we would include this. We do not separate these next words from the first commandment. It's all under the heading of the first commandment where God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God, for, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the father's on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, it is important here to get a little clarification on a couple things. One, when God says he's jealous, you can't think of that primarily in the same way that we tend to use the term. 
For us to be jealous tends to be tainted with all sorts of sin and all sorts of selfishness. But for God to be jealous, the way that he's using this word here is that he is, it's like he's saying, I'm zealous for the affection of my people. So that's why he often compares himself as a husband to a bride when he's talking about his relationship to his people. It's this incredible intimacy. And the second thing, notice the emphasis here that God says that he will uh, basically hold the sins against the, uh, the, the children of the parents of the third or fourth generation, but, but steadfast love to a thousand generations of, for those who keep his commandments. I don't think that that's necessarily meant to be taken literally, but I think that actually is a descriptor of just what tends to happen. What tends to happen is when the father has decided to be disobedient, that that trickles down to the next generation. Whereas if the father was obedient, that also trickles down to further generations. Now, we'll see why that in the final analysis isn't going to apply totally to us when we go through this, but nevertheless wanted to give some clarification there. Luther's large catechism in talking about this commandment really cannot be overdone. It is the best of the best when it comes to understanding what exactly uh, the first commandment actually means. He says these words, A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. As I have often said, and this is his key insight here, as I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, then you have not the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That now, I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Well, that, that, that changes things a little bit from the way we typically think about this. What this means is that there can be all sorts of functional gods in our lives. Even though there's not any such thing as another God, any real God, we certainly believe in things in the same way that we are called to believe in God. According to Luther's definition, we put our trust in them. We look to them. We hope in them. And so what kinds of things do we think of in our world that we can look to or put our trust in as idols, as false gods? Well, the obvious one, of course, is money. Money gives us a sense of assurance, a sense of security. Of course, there's also power as so beautifully illustrated by the show Succession. I shouldn't say beautiful. There's nothing too beautiful about that show, but it does do a great job of illustrating for us the, what the lust for power does to a human being and how it can become a god in a person's life. Or for that matter, fame, especially in our day and age, fame is a major idol uh, that is constantly dragging people down. And the point is, as John Calvin so astutely pointed out, the human heart is an idol factory. We're capable of making anything into a God. Even good things can become God things. So our family can become a God to us if we place our trust and our hope ultimately in them or look to them for our fulfillment. Anything can become this idol for us. That's how tricky the human heart is. That's how deceptive it is. Let's move on to the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Now, when we hear this, we tend to think that this involves swearing, that, that this involves actually saying God's name in a cursing fashion. Though that does apply here, really what's actually going on is more of a slandering of God's name. And what I mean by that is claiming that God has told you something or doing something in the name of God that is contrary to the character of God. So I have here to illustrate that the story of um, the movie Catch Me If You Can, which is based on a true story about a man who basically forges his way through life to convince people that he is a pilot or that he's a lawyer or that he's a doctor. He does all of these things throughout his life based under false pretenses. Well, to use God's name in vain is to claim that God has blessed something or said something is true that is contradictory to that which is true. It is to live in such a way and claim God's blessings upon it when indeed he has not ever said such a thing. The third commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, you can read the rest of the passage here in which it discusses why the Sabbath day is so important. Uh, it's grounded in creation of God's creation of the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. But, but the point here is it's meant for our good. The reason God gives us the Sabbath, he gives his people the Sabbath, is because we know we need to rest. He knows that about us. And yet the reality is, one of the more controversial things that happens in the life of Jesus is that he's accused of not doing the Sabbath right enough. The Sabbath, in fact, had become, instead of a great blessing, had become the ultimate burden for people living in ancient Jerusalem. And indeed, that's part of what led Jesus to cleanse the temple on that day in John's gospel. The Sabbath is meant for, meant for our good. It's meant for us. That's the first three. It has to do with our relationship to God. The, the first one has to do with our heart's devotion. The second one has to do with our words, with how we speak. And the third one has to do with our bodies, making sure that we rest and take time out to hear from God on those days. Now we move to our relationship with the neighbor, the second table of the law. The fir first commandment, you've heard it, or the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. Luther says this, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other uh, authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. In other words, maybe not so harshly as Batman does to Robin here, but we're being called to respect our elders. Notice that it goes nearly beyond honoring our parents, but honoring those in authority above us. This is the, the spirit of the command. You're going to notice this as we go through the commands that we could take it literally at just face value, but there's more depth there. I mean, consider the next one. It says simply, you shall not murder. Now, of course, that does mean like, don't be Richard Ramirez. Don't be the Night Stalker. Murder is wrong. Murder is bad. But there's also a flip side to that, which is Make sure to be helpful to your neighbors. Make sure to, to be a blessing to your neighbors. Make sure to be the kind of person that will walk that older lady across the street. That's in the spirit of the command as well. So it's not enough simply to say, well, I haven't murdered a person. But no, it's also being a blessing to people. You shall not commit adultery. On the one hand, it's obvious. It means not to go out and cheat on one's spouse. On the other hand... It also means to love and cherish one's spouse, as this 92-year-old man shows here, still doing his wife's hair during this time of COVID. 
you shall not steal. Now, of course, it means it's not good to join up with the Ocean's Eleven crew and steal from Las Vegas casinos. On the other hand, it also means trying to build up your neighbor's business, trying to build up their station in life, not merely taking care of yourself. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Of course, that means don't lie. <laughs> Pretty obvious. On the other hand, it also means that we wouldn't be so quick to cancel people for anything that they've done. In other words, it means that we try and put the best construction on what people say as well. So it doesn't mean just simply don't lie, but it also means trying to think and speak about your neighbor in the best way possible. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to lie to ourselves or lie to others about what people have done. Indeed, people have done many wrong things and they will do wrong things. But it just means that we're seeking in, in the spirit of this command to put the best construction on things that we can for the benefit of our neighbor. And then finally, you have the last two commands that we do indeed separate in, in our ordering of the commands. The first or the ninth one is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then the tenth one is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, coveting has to do with wanting what is not yours. Wanting, it's, it's actually connected to lust or greed. It's that idea that you're not satisfied or content with what you have. So, very important before we close up our time looking at the commands and go on to our next section, we must always, always remember that to fulfill these commands, they must be fulfilled from the heart. Thus, Jesus will say in his Sermon on the Mount that it's not merely enough to say, well, I haven't murdered, so I'm good. No, he says that the spirit of murder is just being unjustly angry at somebody. And if you've done that, it's as if you're guilty of murder in the sight of God. The spirit of you shall not commit adultery is actually not lusting after any other person. And if you've done that, then you're guilty of committing adultery in the sight of God. In worship, it means literally perfect adoration from within at all times. And so we might be prone to looking at the law and saying with Nacho Libre, Judge, please, do I look guilty? But yes, indeed, we know that we are in fact guilty. The law reveals that we have not fulfilled it. We have not obeyed it. We can see our weaknesses all throughout. None of us make the cut. And so the question is, is there any gospel in the proclamation of the law at all? I mean, if there's one passage that you might be able to point to and say, there ain't no good news there, you would be wrong though. There is good news. Contrary to what the old man here says, there is indeed some good news because even in the announcement of the, even in the pronouncement of the law, there is good news right at the beginning. Before any law is given, the first words are a reminder of God's unconditional salvation of his people. What does he say? Before any commands are given, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The law was not given as a condition for deliverance, in other words. Deliverance was provided through the blood of the Passover lamb. Deliverance for Israel was provided through their baptism in the Red Sea. That's what Paul calls it, actually, when he's writing to the Corinthians. He says it was their baptism. 
Deliverance was provided by grace alone. Yes, right at the beginning, God wants to remind them, not based on their fulfillment of these commands did he deliver them, but before they had even been given the law, he delivered them surely out of his grace and mercy for them. Well, so too, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the conditions of the law becomes promises of God. What do I mean here? What I mean, if you look at the language of the commands, notice how it says over and over again, you shall, you shall, you shall. Now, on the one hand, we can see the conditionality of that. We say, okay, we should. But also remember, in Christ, our true and better Passover lamb, in Christ, the one who provides us our true and better baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has indeed delivered us by grace alone through faith alone, well, in Christ, we are declared to be perfectly righteous. And so there is a sense in which we, when we hear the law, we don't just hear the demands, but we also hear a promise of what God is going to declare us to be. Yes, in Christ, it is as if we have worshipped perfectly, that we have never misused God's name, that we have always rested when we needed to rest, that we have perfectly honored our father and mother, that we have not murdered, that we have not committed adultery, that we have not stolen, we have not lied, we have not coveted. No, in Christ we're seen as if we have fulfilled these things, and therefore, therefore in the sight of God, even in the proclamation of the law, we're given hints that ultimately the final word is the gospel. The gospel is the final governing word throughout all of scripture. And that is where we hang our hat for our hope today. Even as the law comes to us and shows us where we've fallen, it once again reminds us of the good news that that is not the final word from God. All right, that is... Probably a little longer devotion than I normally do, but I just couldn't, you know, go short on the commands. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I hope that you've seen, indeed, God's two words today through our look at Exodus chapter 20. God's richest blessings to you. We'll see you next week.